Hey everyone, Eric here. We're really excited about a new AI show from Turpentine called Autopilot, hosted by Will Summerlin. This podcast explores the adoption and rollout of AI in the industries that drive the economy and the dynamic tech founders bringing rapid scalable change to slow moving industries. From law to hardware to aviation, Will interviews founders backed by Benchmark, Greylock, YC, and more to learn how they're automating at the frontiers in entrenched industries. Click on the link in the description to subscribe to Autopilot. Welcome back to Turpentine VC, a podcast where we discuss the art and science of building successful venture firms, VC to VC. For today's episode, we have Ali Hamed. Ali is a partner at CoVenture, an alternative asset manager specializing in venture, speciality lending, and crypto. We discuss the advantages of investing across asset classes, CoVenture's inflection points, the importance of being liked in venture, why LPs are willing to accept lower returns from big brand VCs, asset classes Ali hopes to invest in in the future, and much more. Here's our conversation. Holy smokes, just a world-famous Eric Tornberg. Hey, hey, what's up, man? Great to, uh, great to see you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. How are you doing? You made the big announcement. So I remember we were talking, we we're like, dude, this is like top, top secret. Like nobody can know. And I was like, okay, man. I was saying I either have to tame myself a little bit because people are like, oh, you're doing too many things. Or I have to just go full me. And I'm going to try going full me and seeing how that goes. I love that. I love that. Full send. Yeah, exactly. You're one of the most interesting venture capitalists in the game because you don't only do venture capital or you don't only think about um, this asset class. You think about other asset classes and you think about building an asset management firm. You know, give some context. What is CoVenture today exactly? And how did it get there? How, how do you think about like the type of firm you're building? Because it's different than any other venture capital firm that, that's been on this podcast. Yeah, we have... Um... So the co-venture group has three main strategies. We do early stage venture capital investing. That's at a cross beam. We have our asset back credit business where we find tech companies that are making loans or might call themselves specialty finance businesses, or they need capital for something other than general operations. And we, you know, they might be buying a company that has a cash flow associated with it, or they might be financing a home or a hard asset or a soft asset like a receivable, and we'll provide them debt capital to finance those assets. And then we have a business that we call the hybrid business where we're finding companies that are mature, they're already profitable, they were thinking about selling, but they can't agree with the market on price, or they're thinking about doing a growth equity round. And there we'll do, you know, 50 to $150 million investments to provide capital in a reasonably structured way to, you know, um, help with the mismatch of price expectations between founders and investors. So those are the three main businesses that we're in. Um, and so that, that, that is what, who we are and what we are today. We're, we're, there's 35 of us-ish. Um, you know, we, we probably invest half a billion to a billion dollars a year. We'll do 20 to 40 transactions a year usually. You know, on the venture side, our deals are usually half a million to $3 million. On the credit side, they're as small as $25 million. They'll go up to $500 million. So it really just kind of depends on the strategy. But that's us in a nutshell. And why don't you just do venture capital like everybody else? Like, why are you doing these other things? Why don't other firms try to copy your strategy? Like, what secret powers do you have there? Like, say more about this. Yeah. Um, so every asset class is imperfect in its own way. You know, I think in credit, 
you know, people spend too much time focused on the security and the structure of a deal and probably not enough time on the company itself. You know, the analog in venture, by the way, is venture capitalists spend too much time maybe on like founding team and market, but they get like the wrong company in the right market. Um, and I think it's like a very thesis oriented asset class and, and there's probably like not as much rigor as there should be. Um, and, and just like examples, by the way, of how, how a venture mindset though might help credit, like credit's a weird business in that like the best way to be a winner in credit is to be the biggest winner in the space, but it's hard to be the biggest in credit. Like there's big firms, there's Blackstone, there's Apollo, there's all these different firms. Um, and so the best thing you could do is take your venture hat, which is like looking for new markets that don't matter yet, but might matter a lot tomorrow, be the biggest at scale player in a very small market today and just grow with the market over time and continue to dominate. That's like a very unique approach to credit that other credit investors don't have. And we only have that approach because we have a venture DNA. Um, in venture, there's a lot of good things about venture. I don't think rigor is one of them. You know, I think people could do a lot more to underwrite the companies they're in. And in our credit business, we live, breathe, and die over every basis point. So it's like too rigorous. Um, and so I think that we benefit from the pluses and minuses of that. And also in different vintages, different parts of the market are interesting. Like right now, the hybrid business sees tons of deal flow because there's a huge bid-ask spread in, in investors and founder expectations. And there's a ton of deal flow. I think for the last two years, everybody in venture has been wondering when valuations are going to come down. You know, oh my God, the market is destroyed. Why are people still raising their seed rounds at like 20 pre and they've never founded a company before? And it's like pre-launch. Um, you know, and so when you're in only one asset class, you kind of feel forced to invest whether or not you should be investing in every vintage. And when you're in multiple asset classes, it's not that you get in the market or out of the market, but you slow down or you speed up. And it's really easy to see relative value. And, you know, like different companies need different types of capital. I mean, being, being able to invest in companies in a few different ways just triples our deal flow. You know, we see a company and we have three different ways that we can invest in it. Um, and so instead of trying to like force the company to work within the confines of our business, or force ourselves to put money out in a vintage where maybe we shouldn't be putting money out. The firm is always investing. We're just going up and down the capital structure, depending on the vintage and the nature of the vintage and what we should be doing. You know, I think, I think having a bit of credit heritage, you know, to, to our venture, you know, LPs and tell them like, gosh, thank God, you know, we went through a bus cycle and I bet you were a lot more durable because we know how to do risk management and protect against the downside and manage hard situations. And, you know, I think when we're at our worst in venture, we might be too linear thinkers. You know, we do a little bit less of a job of imagining what could be because we're like neurotic credit guys. And, you know, we do we were we do diligence, which, you know, so we don't do deals when we meet companies after five days or whatever. So, we're, you know, we're, we're idiots or I don't know, whatever we are. But when we're at our best, it means that we can win in both boom and bust cycles, which we think we're doing. Um, and and it's, it's been pretty good. You know, when, when things get hard, that's like our sweet spot. Um, so, like. You know, I think people in venture probably struggle to have hard conversations. We professionally have hard conversations all the time. And by the way, hard conversations don't mean mean conversations. They just mean intellectually honest ones or like, how do we get through this together as partners? Um, so I think there's a lot of benefits. So say, say more about that. Which, which hard conversations are, are, are venture capitalists not, not having that they probably should be having? I think, I think VCs like just like being liked. And it's a business where being liked and being accepted is important because the value of companies in many ways is often based on just like the consensus, like in, in private equity or something, but the knock on private equity is like too much focus on the company, not enough focus on the market. You know, private equity funds like specialize in investing in good companies and crappy markets. Sometimes I'm sure a private equity investor listening to this would be like, that's not true, but you know, many of them do, you know, and, and, and it makes sense. Cause like in private equity or credit, the reason you like a company is like, 
did it make money? You underwrite to a multiple or you underwrite to comps or you underwrite to a discounted cash. Like there's like, you're basically underwriting data. You're not doing a deal because like some famous venture capitalist was like, that's a great market. You should do it. And in venture, you know, it's such a scary business because you're kind of like investing on hope and imagination and like what could be that you want a crowd of like smart people who've done it before to like a business. And, you know, you, you rely on a crowd to like you. So they do the next round, you know, like in, in venture capital, we're all a bunch of merchant bankers. You know, we have a small little balance sheet. We put a little bit of our balance sheet to a company. We try to sell equity to somebody else at a higher price and we get paid like, you know, and we not get, we don't get paid like advisory fees. Instead, we like get into a round at too low evaluation if we're perceived to be able to help the company raise their next round and like be accepted by the community. And so because of all those like needs to be accepted and liked, you know, we, we, we say a lot of things to companies, not because it's the right thing for the company to hear, but because we think it's going to make people like us more, like the other board members are going to like us, the founder will like us, we'll get positive references. There's all these like blogs and like forums where people write like nicer, mean things about the VCs that they've met, um, you know, and, and are very rarely like we had this like really good intellectual debate about the company and like it was like they liked me or they didn't like me. <laughs> um, so it's not like it's not like because people are irrational or stupid. It's just like a good way to be. It's like a, it's a, one of the popular ways to be good at venture capital. Um, and hard conversations there were things like. Hey, look, like, are you ever going to get beyond this preference stack? Like, do you really want to keep running this company for that long or should we try to sell it? Or, you know, I think a lot of founders, for example, you know, they're so used to a rah-rah culture and they're afraid that if they admit that things aren't going well, like employees might leave or like the non-believers will leave or like they don't want to do a layoff because like, what would that do to the culture? Would the good people leave because the bad people got laid off or let go or whatever? And, um, and, you know, and, and, those are all natural, normal things. And it's not about being a good partner or a bad partner. I'm not suggesting that like having hard conversations is like the goal is to like rip value away or be a jerk. It's actually kind, you know, it's, it's like more kind to somebody to be honest with them and like, let them know where things might be. And I, you know, I don't, I don't really see, I see a lot of, um, whatever, like that, like the, the famous now Elon Musk interview. Like I thought my favorite part was it. it's like, people want to be perceived as being good, not actually being good. I was like, yes, that's so true. Um, I think, VCs care a lot more about being perceived as good as opposed to actually being good. Right. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, there, there's this quote as uh, saying, don't be the best, be the only. Are you the only firm that's doing things the way that you're doing it in terms of, you know, venture, credit, g- growth? How do you think about that? We're all our own little snowflakes. No, probably <laughs> not. Long. You know, <laughs> like there's, there's plenty of people who have done, you know, investing across asset classes. First off, like most of finance is that way. Venture is like one of the unique asset classes where it's like, no, we do one thing. We do it really well. And, you know, I'd, I'd say like there's a lot of consolidation in financial services, asset management. I think we're, we're probably one of the few firms that has like a venture capital fund and an asset back credit fund and a hybrid fund where we focus on largely growing companies um, and tech enabled companies. Um, but, you know, Victory Park invests in asset-backed credit. Um, Adelaya does. You know, there's a lot of people who do that. There's a lot of really good seed funds, obviously. Maybe there's too many good seed funds. And, I mean, firms like Soros have been investing in the equity and debt of companies forever. So, you know, I think I think there's definitely unique thing, parts of what we do. I think that we have a unique point of view on the world. I think that, like, if I was just another seed investor, Eric, I think you'd find me a lot less interesting. Um, I'd just be, like, an, another knucklehead running around with, like, half a million to $3 million checks to sell to people. But I think by being in these other funds and asset classes, yeah, we develop a unique point of view. And it turns out that being in venture capital, it's important to have a unique point of view. And so do you, if you were an LP, you know, specializing in, 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 you know, emerging managers or, or just venture fund venture period, would you 
be more excited about funds that were in different asset classes. Like, you know, there's thousands of venture funds. Nearly all of them are just in venture. Should should more venture firms and you know managers listening to this podcast think about getting into another asset class? If it works for them, I think that what I would do as an LP is try to like lean into the sincerity of the manager, um, and like is the story honest? Like like when people raise funds, you can either raise fund on a really good track record, a really good narrative, or from people you already know. And most people who raise new funds don't already have a track record and they don't already know a bunch of people who will give them $100 million. They come up with these like cockamamie stories of like, we're going to be a sector focused fund or a geography focused fund or like, we're going to be the strategic fund associated with this other organization. We're going to add all this value. Like, and they come up with like all these made up stories because it's good for fundraising. And this, and the story, like they shouldn't be stories. They should just be like, this is who we are. And you know, this is, this is what's sincere to us. And we think that we're good at it. Like, I mean, my, it works for me because I'm like a neurotic, you know, curmudgeon-y, like nervous guy, you know? And so like, how am I going to be different in venture? I'm going to like find other founders who want somebody who's going to be like worried about their company in a positive and constructive way. Like, you know, and, but you know, we have the imagination, like we're still looking for unicorn companies, but probably my closest friends and friend in venture is this guy, Jesse at IA. And we always joke, we're like, we're like best friends, but like we've been spending 10 years trying to co-invest together. We never have like, if, if you know, like we, we joke, like we couldn't compete with each other if we tried to, you know, cause we're just, we've been trying to co-invest. Um, and he just has a different approach and they're like the opposite. They're incredibly focused. They, they invest in long feedback loop companies, a lot of technical risk. We often invest in short feedback loop businesses, a little bit less technical risk, not always, but, but often. Um, so I think that the LP should look at the manager and be like, what's right for the manager. You know, I mean, with you, Eric, like imagine if I try to be more like you, like, I just, I just don't have it in my bone in my body. I am not, I'm not as good with a megaphone. I mean, the thing that makes you so special like in venture capital, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to take something that's like a contrarian idea that not many people like believe in. And then like, you're supposed to invest in the company and then tell the world why they were wrong. And now they should believe. And like, you have this insane microphone and megaphone to go do that with. Like, I don't, it's not as natural for me. So I have to win in a different way. Um, so I think an LP shouldn't do a fund or a strategy because it's associated with other funds. They should do it because they think it like aligns with a sincere strengths of the person they're talking with. If I imagine I try to build a media company and like a, like an education company along with my venture capital, I'd do it so much worse than you. Right. But you can also build out your team to uh, bring strengths um, that like, if you believe in a strategy and you don't have the right skills, and strategy, you can grow your team and, and you've done that, right? You, you spend, you have 35 people, you have people, with different skill sets. Talk about how you thought about team building at CoVenture and where are you going? Like, Five years from now, what is like? What are you trying to turn CoVenture into? And some of that is, you know, bottoms up in terms of the the skill sets that you have, um, but also some of it is also, I'm sure, like where is the world going? Where is their opportunity? Where is their white space? Like the, the the two limiting factors of our firm are, or I guess maybe like the two um, things that you have to struggle with in terms of how fast you want to build the business. Like one way to build a firm quickly is raise pretty non-discretionary funds. Like the extreme goalpost of that is like single name SPVs. And it's easy to raise a lot of money for that because people don't really need to trust you as much. They just need to look at the deal and feel like you have access and like hopefully your diligence materials aren't terrible. And then like you have like a sector focused fund or a geography focused fund or a very narrowly focused fund, which again, that's great for narrative. It's probably worse for investing, but it's good for narrative. And like it makes you credible and like for an LP, it probably like limits the downside because they can push it through IC and they can understand like why it works that way. And then 
And then like the most extreme is like, if I went to somebody and said, you've got to give me money, I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to do with it. I could like buy like asteroids and I could buy, you know, and I could buy companies and I could buy income share agreements and I could do anything in the world. And like, there's groups that do that, not many. And that, but that'd be like a much slower way. And I'm like, and there's people in my life who would probably, you know, give us capital, do literally anything we wanted with, um, but probably less than people who would give us capital for a certain strategy. So like, when you think about how fast or slow you build a firm, you know, it's like, how discretionary do you want it? Uh, the funds to be. And, um, you know, it's a compromise. You know, you could either build an, uh, an overly simple firm and probably build a little bit more slowly or a slightly more complicated firm and build a little bit more fast. And so that's like sort of the pluses and minuses. And then in terms of people, which is the question you actually asked, it's the same sort of conflict. The, the way to build a firm faster and a company faster is you make a lot of senior lateral hires because you're hiring people who know how to do stuff already. And if you're trying to grow in like turbo speed, you want to, you're building a software company that sells into law firms. You should hire a former VP of sales of a software company that's sold into law firms. The problem though with older people or more senior people, is they, it's not that they're better or worse. It's that they have different decision-making style. You know, there, by the way, there might be some negative selection bias. Like is the best person who's like the chief something going to really leave if they're actually that good at their job sometimes, but, but less often. You know, but it's really decision-making style. You know, senior people have a way of doing things and they might have different risk tolerances or not risk tolerances, or they might be used to managing a big team versus a small team. You know, we have a term internally called um, like iPad guys, which are like the types of employees who show up with an iPad because they don't do their own work anymore and they orchestrate a team of people. Um, the other the other term we have is like, can this person pass the typing test? Like, do they do their own work? Um, and uh you know, that's a cultural thing that's important to us. But a fast way to grow the business is to, to sometimes hire iPad guys, you know, people who are senior and know how to do stuff. And you're going to take some cultural risk along the way and maybe some performance risk along the way. So that kind of sucks. The best way to grow a business is, um, you know, you want to hire young people and then grow them organically in the organization because, you know, they'll filter the top. They know where to find stuff. They have a lot of social capital in the organization. They have clout. They have a decision-making style that's similar to senior management because they've been taught by senior management. The problem is you got to wait for them to grow. You know, the, like if you think about Goldman, like the pre-IPO version of Goldman, like the partners had been born and grown at Goldman. I mean, if you talk to somebody who was at Goldman, even if they're at a firm, three firms after, they still consider themselves a Goldman person. You know, being a Goldman partner was part of their identity. If you think about, like I think Apollo's status, like the average partner has been at Apollo for 18 years. You know, and so those are franchises that have had the opportunity to grow these people. They've developed these people. And that's the best way, but it's a slower way. So you ask where the firm is going. You know, we are in service of our LPs, of course, and we're in service of our portfolio companies and where are the market opportunities. But I think the thing that people underappreciate is how much where our firm is going is based on making sure that the people in our organization have a place to go. You know, one of the, one of the assumptions that we make is that ambitious people make for better investors than unambitious people. Not a very controversial thing, I don't think. And so the problem is, you know, in, in, but in venture, for example, like we'll never grow the firm, you know, never, never get too big and agreed by the way, getting too big definitionally is wrong because you had poured two in there, but an ambitious person wants to develop in their career. And so they can either develop because they added scope to their job. And so if the firm gets bigger, then they can add scope because the firm has more scope. And if the firm doesn't grow, they can grow the scope of their role by taking scope from other people. And the case of like Unisquare Ventures or Benchmark or some of these like wonderful and unique and rare organizations, there's like senior people who have voluntarily given up scope to make room for the ambitious scope of the younger people as they grow. 
But in most organizations, it's like people in their 30s and 40s who make most of the money and like people in their 50s and 60s who take all the money because like they don't leave and they're probably not creating as much value as they used to. And I'm sure somebody's going to like be super pissed off that I said that. But like that's probably kind of how it works um, in a lot of places. And if you are stuck and you're not growing, then you're going to like your ambitious people are either going to get political and start taking scope from people or they're going to leave. And so where are we going? You know, our job is to find the smartest people we possibly can, try to hire them when they're young, grow them in the organization. And if one of those people either gets more ambitious and qualified, we'll try to raise more money in the, into the funds so that they can just do more and add scope to their lives. Or if they identify a strategy and a thesis and, you know, like, and it kind of makes sense for one of our strategies, but it becomes a concentrated part of the strategy, we might break it out into its own new strategy one day. And that could take 10 years. So we don't really think about it of like, we already know where we're going. I think we, we know that we, we're trying to find where, like we didn't know we were going to be in hybrid until the market allowed for it. And we had a guy named Dan who was just amazing. And he was doing good deals and, and, and impressed us. And we had gone through good deals with him and hard deals that he had been able to work out. And everybody at the firm loved him and wanted, you know, so we developed hybrid. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Over 100 startups launched today. Do you know who they are? If you're not seeing interesting startups, none of your downstream processes matter. How you source deals at the earliest stages could be your most consequential investment. Harmonic is the most complete startup database, finding new companies as soon as they incorporate and tracking them through IPO. You can create a search tailored to your investment thesis. In one search, filter over company data, including venture stage, industry, and geography founders and operators' backgrounds, and traction metrics like headcount changes, social media audience, and web traffic growth. Importantly, Harmonic instantly surfaces warm connections to help you connect with founders. The results are delivered on autopilot, wherever you most need them, over Slack, email, or via API, directly into your CRM, integrating seamlessly into your software stack. Learn why Craft, Bedrock, NEA, and hundreds more. Trust Harmonic's data by visiting harmonic.ai or use the link in the description. Make sure you mention our podcast, Turpentine VC, during your demo. Is there an asset class that you're not yet in that you know you want to get into in the next five to, to, to 10 years? Like, you know, we've seen Andreessen and Thrive get to 10 figure, um, you know, sort of AUM by just doing everything in venture, uh, you know, at, at all, all, all scales. Um, and, um, you know, I suspect that they'll get into multiple asset classes too at, at, at some point. Um, you've gone into multiple asset classes earlier, but you're more scoped within venture. Um, pay, paint a little bit more of a picture of like, if all your dreams come true within five to 10 years, what, what you could imagine co-venture uh, doing. That's, it's not doing today. You know, I, I think probably the main place that we see the most opportunity now is, and it's not a good trade yet because where mortgage rates are and where the cost of building is and, you know, housing prices haven't corrected, but I, I'm, we're pretty fascinated by the housing crisis. I mean, it's, it's sad. Like, you know, I, I think a lot less people in our generation will be able to buy homes than the prior generation and the next generation will probably find it even harder. And we have like a really serious like building problem in the US. And that's partly regulatory, it's partly labor. It's it's a lot of things. And we've spent a lot of time trying to figure out the right way to solve that. I mean, there's a lot of big problems in the world. There's like healthcare problems, there's like climate problems, uh, there's like whatever some long list. The, probably the one that like we feel most passionate about and maybe qualified to have our little dent in the world will be the housing crisis. And I wouldn't be surprised if sometime in the next 10 years, 
we figure out how out of our asset back business, we can develop a point of view on that and then build a strategy around it over time. And I say that because like we literally have no opportunities right now to do so. Like we haven't found a single deal um, that's solving that. You know, we think that a lot of the prefab businesses just consume tons and tons of capital. By the way, I hope they work. They probably will work, but I don't think they're ready for credit yet. And actually it's interesting. So like these prefab, if you think about lending to these companies, it's sort of like a, a weird problem. So like on one hand, like if you lent money for a construction build, would you lend at a higher rate for a prefab, like, you know, one of these tech companies that just like prints these homes over and over again, or for like the old way of building things, like the traditional way? Your, your first instinct is probably, well, it's so much less risky if like a robot is like, or a machine is building these like prefab homes and like they're modular and whatever. And like, there's no risk in developing it. And a general contractor, like who's ever heard that they're like development, like they're, they're, they're building, like their home got built on the timeline they thought it was going to get built. But actually the weird problem is your, your losses are lower in prefab or in one of these modern ways of building, but your severity loss is greater because if your general contractor screws up, you can replace your general contractor. But if you're like prefab home builder screws up, you can't replace the prefab home builder because all the machinery and equipment is like their custom, like their proprietary stuff. And so like, it's a weird credit problem. You actually lend at a higher rate to a prefab business than to a traditional home builder. Even though the traditional home builder will have like a much worse experience client by client by client than the prefab. So there's all these like weird, fun, interesting, like credit problems in home building. I, I, I can imagine we'll continue to think about it. I hope we find a solution. We're probably years away. The, the other, by the way, the other thing that I think a lot about as we build our firm is, um, and I guess this is a knock on us a little bit. So uh, hopefully it's not taken too, too negatively, but like all, a lot of the best firms are built at like the dawn of their asset class. You know, like Sequoia was kind of founded at the dawn of venture capital and you know, Oak Tree was at the dawn of like, you know, non-investment grade credit and, you know, whatever, you know, like a, Apollo and Guggenheim and stuff probably like won the insurance trade and they were kind of at the dawn of the insurance trade. And, um, you know, we were in private credit, but we weren't founded at the dawn of it. You know, we're in venture capital and we weren't founded at the dawn of it. And, and one of the suspicions I have is in the course of the next, like I'm 32, I'd imagine I'll probably be working for at least the next hundred years or whatever, at least, you know, 30 to 40 more years. It's a, it's hard for me to imagine that during your career and my career, there won't be a new asset class that gets founded. I think some people thought it was going to be crypto at one point. And I hope we're at the dawn of it. Like, I hope we realize it when that new asset class is getting formed. And I don't know if it's going to be like a new type of investing that's never existed before, or we take like a subsector of investing that like we just rename it. Um, I forgot who I was talking to, so it's not my quote, but they were like, they always laugh when they hear that venture capital has only been around for 60 years. They're like, obviously venture capital has been around for longer than that. We just came up with like a cool name for it finally and became an asset class. So maybe there's something right in front of us that none of us know about, but I hope, I hope we get to invest in that. I hope we get to be at the dawn of a new asset class as a firm and hang around the hoop and be credible and have a good track record and people like us enough where they'll give us the opportunity to be a part of it. And, and that, that would be a good way to become a big investment firm. But I, I don't know what that is yet. It's almost like asking a venture capitalist, like, do you know what deal is going to make your career? <laughs> like, no, I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting. I mean, talk about um, crypto because you, you guys have done some stuff there. What, um, how have you thought about that, that asset class and whether to go big or not go big, you know, at it, or how do you think about that? We thought it was interesting. We still think it's interesting. We see less deal flow in the space. And, you know, I think the most compelling thing for a long time is that 
you know, having small talk about crypto is fun. You know, you're talking about like governance and economics and there's like no such thing as crypto and small talk, right? Like it's like, it's, it's, so it's an interesting conversation. Um, there's like, of course, like the, the components of it are still really fascinating. It's like, oh my gosh, like should every big thing in the world be governed by a few small people or should it be governed by like many, many people where no one's really in control? Hopefully the latter, there's negatives of the latter, which is like, it's lower quality, you know, it's democracy versus dictatorships, although dictatorships fall in the end, you know, but they go faster. Um, you know, so there's, so all those like interesting parts of like, should the world be more distributed? Totally. Um, are less of the smartest people in the world working on it? Yeah. A lot of them are working on AI now. It's like probably the reason everyone's like obsessed with AI is like everyone's smartest friend is working on an AI startup now. And so like, you know, part of our job in venture capital is to follow talented people. I think our approach to it was pretty basic. Like in our, in our funds, we like, we basically said, well, we're, we think it's really interesting. We want to own enough of it where if it works really well, we're not pissed. And if it doesn't really work very well, we're not pissed either. And, you know, I think we came up with a rule in turn. Like we'll, we'll get up to 5% of the fund and things that are related to crypto. Um, if it does really well, that'll be enough where we'll feel like it had a big dent in the fund in a positive way. If it doesn't go very well, it means that, um, it won't like, tear a hole in the side of our fund. I think for a lot of people, like it blew a hole in the side of their fund. So that's like the risk management thing. It's like pretty basic. It turns out like you shouldn't have like half your fund in one sector. Like you wouldn't have half your fund in like, you know, unless you're like a prop tech fund, just in prop tech, for example. So we risk managed it. There's a lot less deal flow in the last year or so. So we haven't really, I don't expect that we'll get to the full 5%. And, you know, I, I think that the stuff that we did um, in the meantime, some, there's a couple companies that will do well, alleged, you know, it seems. And there's a couple of things that we got smoked on and like we sized them well and I wish they hadn't lost money. They did. And, and, but it really won't move the needle for the fund in a big way. That's how, that's how you're supposed to size your venture bets. Actually, you want your, you want your failures to fail quickly because if they fail, like if they look like they're winners initially, then you put more money into them and then they really become expensive losers. You want them to fail like as fast as possible. By the way, that's the hard conversation, easy conversation thing too. Yeah. Is, is it, Fair to say that there are some multi-stage firms or even individuals who've been able to raise colossal amount of capital, you know, many billions of dollars who have not done that well from a multiples basis, but that the LPs that they're working with can put a lot of capital to work and maybe didn't need such a high multiples. And so in some weird way, kind of everyone's happy, even though the multiples aren't that great because the firms made a ton of money. Yeah. <laughs> the answer is yes. Um, you know, I think different organizations have different ways of compensating their people and judging success. You know, some organizations like in venture capital, there's like at least some alignment that like you get carry and allegedly you're supposed to make your wealth on carry and not management fees. Although I'm sure in some firms, that's not always the case. You know, a lot of, you know, endowments or certain pensions or sovereigns, like I'm not sure that there's some like bonus structure that's, ah, you got like the best VC fund. So we're like going to give you a, a big bonus. So that's probably a problem. It turns out like incentive based pay is like pretty good. Like it's like a good concept and not, not all groups have that. I mean, I think, I think one of the problems also is like, why do, why do P, why do LPs pick funds? They don't want to get fired. You know? So if you pick a brand and, the, and, and like, like if a big brand loses money, you're okay. Cause you'd be like, well, it's not my fault. It's a big brand. And if it's a small brand that loses money, there's more risk. So, you know, as a small brand, you have to, you know, you just de definitionally have to be able to explain to people that you're going to do better than average. That's the way to justify investing in a small brand because you're creating some career risk for the person allocating to you. 
in some cases, you know, you have like, you know, distribution groups that, you know, they'll select a manager and distribute that manager to their clients or whatever. And, you know, you want to say, I have allocation to a famous person's fund or, you know, a firm that like is oversubscribed. And so like, I, you know, I'm getting paid for giving you something that you can't get access to yourself or whatever. Um, so yeah, you know, there's some firms that like aren't selling returns they're selling a brand or they're selling allocation or they're selling interestingness or they're selling that they're saving the world. Um, you know, I think luckily there's a, there's a huge amount of LPs who do care only about returns and, you know, that's the efficient part of the market and there's lots of it. And so, yeah, it's better to have good returns and not good returns, but do some groups build a business based on having good enough, good enough returns to keep raising their next fund, but they're more focused on the brand than on the returns. Probably. Well, it, it, not just returns, but multiples specifically and multiples on like on a certain level of cash. So if you could put, you know, billions of dollars to work as an LP, you know, maybe you're more flexible having a, a 2X or, or something like that. Yeah. I mean, well, also, is, that's not, by the way, completely irrational. Like, I think if, if it's a 2X versus 10X, like if somebody said, hey, Eric, you know, you get to put $10 into something, you're going to get a 10X return, or you can put $1,000 into something, I'll give you a 4X, you'll do the 1000 because you want $3,000 of excess, you know, of the income as opposed to 90 $90 of income and you don't really care about, you know, your, your goal is to make the most money possible, <laughs> you know, and there's like different ways to get there. Exactly. But yeah, I mean like, like, you know, I, I had this debate with somebody which was like, should benchmark raise bigger funds? I'm like, well, if you were benchmark and your only dream was to like better the world, like that was the only thing you should, you wanted to do. And what you would do is you'd go to LPs who are nonprofits, the causes you care the most about, and you would basically raise as much as you could from them until you felt like you were no longer delivering alpha. So you could provide as much absolute income to the causes that you cared about, knowing that like their second best option was probably worse than like your diminishing returns. So like maybe they weren't going to get like a 20 X on their next fund or whatever. They only got like an eight X, but like, you know, if that was your goal to only make the world better in your eyes as a benchmark partner, I don't mean to keep sorry to the people at benchmark. You know, I think you guys are great. Um, you know, but like, they should raise a bigger fund, you know, and, and they're, they, but, but I think that they're, they're playing for a lot of things. One, I think they probably do that. And so it's good. I'm so glad that they exist. They've taught everybody in the venture world so much. And I'm, you know, I think they get to pick and choose who they work with. And, and I'm sure many, much of it goes to good causes. Uh, but they're also playing like a, you know, they're competing with themselves in some way. And they're like in it for the love of the game and they love investing. And they, they like, there's something like about the heritage of venture being a cottage industry that like, maybe one of the impacts that they're having on the world is leading by example and teaching people not to raise big funds. So maybe that would be a counter argument. It's like, I think what you're seeing is like, I don't think there's any right or wrong answers to this stuff. It's just all context. Do you think more venture is going to look more like benchmark or more venture is going to look more like Andreessen Horowitz? Like, you know, venture firms trying to become asset management firms and just like consolidate. I bet less like benchmark. And I mean, I think, I, or Union Square Ventures. I mean, I think it's great that they exist, but I think it goes back to the ambition thing. Like they are unique in that they have senior partners who recruit ambitious people by offering them something they don't need to offer, which is equal partnership. Like, you know, and then, and then by the way, leaving <laughs> and um, without retaining terminal value in the management company. Um, Will that happen sometimes? Yes. Is that unique and unlikely to be common? Also, yes. And so, like, would I extrapolate what a handful of firms have done in the world 
and assume that that's likely to be the path of the rest of venture? No, that would be like really dumb. It's probably going to be like a profit maximizing, like highly rational pursuit. And from time to time, there'll be people who have decided they're in it for like the love of the game. And they're probably leaving some money on the table, or maybe they decided like they're not leaving money on the table because if they decided not to do that, they wouldn't have been there in the first place. I don't know, but I, I bet you that's unique and not the norm. And I think people talk about it as if that's like the North star. I'm, again, I think it's great that those firms have been built that way, but like you're relying on a pretty unique pattern. Um, it's almost like looking at how like Jeff Bezos built his business being like, Oh, we should all be like Jeff Bezos. No, like Jeff Bezos is unique. He's, you probably, we probably have very little to learn from him. You know, like we're probably like, it's probably, you have a lot more to learn from like a, an average founder who like used their average skill set to be slightly above average by doing certain things. Right. Like Jeff Bezos is a genius. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, talk more about the co-venture story in terms of what were the big inflection points, right? Like I remember you started out by providing this sort of like technical co-founder for hire um, or, or for equity service, which is pretty pretty innovative at the time. And then now you're, you know, uh, you know, billion dollar plus AUM um, across, you know, different asset classes. Talk about the different inflection points. And then I want you to reflect on if you were, uh, Ali Hamed in 2024 today, um, and had to start over knowing everything, you know, now, but co-venture didn't exist and, and where the market is right now, what would that path look like? God, starting over sounds horrible. <laughs> I don't know that I, 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 can I take a year off? <laughs> yes, you can take a year. Um, <laughs> no, um, inflections points of the firm. So, so we had this kooky idea to build software for equity. We were like, well, there's all these non-technical founders and, um, they need, technical co-founders and they give way too much equity to people who like could code crappy apps. And we're like, well, we could code better than crappy apps. Um, and, and that was the initial strategy and it, and it was good. Like we made a lot, you know, I think we're really proud of what we did for our LPs. It wasn't a strategy that could scale because you had to like hire a bunch of engineers and have this like big overhead cost. And it turns out like you start to build crappy apps if you try to scale too fast. Um, and also people didn't want to like have like an outsourced technical co-founder, like broke the mythology of startups and like every VC is like, well, you need a technical co-founder. And um, so, so it, it went really well in that it got us like on the map. It taught us a lot. Everybody who was invested were proud of what we've done with them. And I think they would, if you called them, they would say that they like us a lot. Um, but it also was like by doing that, we ended up investing in a business called Produce Pay. And that was like a big inflection point. Produce Pay was financing perishable produce farmers. No one had ever lent against perishable produce. They don't lend against produce, but they finance it by taking title to it while it's um, on consignment in terminal markets in Los Angeles or Texas or wherever. And uh, they basically provide liquidity to the produce industry. And they needed debt capital. It wasn't, they didn't need venture debt. They needed asset back credit. They needed somebody to provide them the capital they were using to finance the produce that they were originating. And we thought it was a great credit because not exactly this, but basically it felt like you were getting paid, like you were financing a Latin American farmer, but taking the credit risk of a U.S.-based distributor. So it was a pretty good credit. We raised an SPV. Why did we raise an SPV? It's because we had no business doing credit, um, you know, but our LP saw the deal. They liked our diligence. They thought we were honest. And we, we raised an SPV around it. And it like was a way for us to generate revenues and build the firm. And um, and then because we did that deal, we started getting sent all kinds of deal flow from all these VCs that like had never really wanted to meet with us, but suddenly wanted to meet with us because we were like willing to finance their companies in a different way. And it was like the coolest thing ever. It was like all these people that I'd always wanted to meet. So they wanted to meet us. And I was like, wow, this is amazing. Maybe there's product market fit here. 
And so we did this SPV business for a number of years. Um, we raised some equity capital into the management company because it turns out investment professionals are expensive and I didn't have any, you know, real money myself at the time. And so I needed operating capital. So, you know, we raised money from a gentleman named Mark Spilker and a handful of other people. Mark had been the president of Apollo before that he ran GSAM and he's just been this incredible mentor and, and partner of ours. He helped us figure out who we needed to hire, how to build like an investment process. We hired people who really had done structured credit for a while. And we kept doing these SPVs until 2019. We went out to all of our SPV investors and we said, hey, guys, um, gosh, it'd be really great if we had a fund. You know, we've been doing this for like five years and we think we're pretty good at it. And, um, you know, we'll give you maybe better economics if you give us discretionary capital as opposed to SPV capital. Because, you know, SPVs is a stressful way to live. You commit to a company, then you go raise the money and you hope you get it in time. And uh, it's horrible, you know, and you got to communicate and be clear with the founder about it. But it's it's not fun. And so we had a fun, you know, we, we raised our first vehicle that was discretionary in 2019. And since then, that's really the, the asset back business that we built. In 2020, we, um, you know, we had a point of view that we were probably good at venture. You know, I, I always loved venture. It was, it was probably my first love. And because of all these people who had sent us deal flow and asset back credit, and because, you know, we, I, I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, you can raise money either from people, you know, a good track record or a good story. We had no story. It was like, we already had this credit business. I was going to run this other, you know, strategy. Um, but we had people we knew. And everybody told us we should raise a fintech fund. Everyone was like, oh, you should do a fund that invests in like lending companies. No, that would be like a terrible idea. Like it's so, it's so hard to run such a, a specific fund because the, if you assume that the best talent wants to work at journalist funds and you also assume that the leading indicator of a good venture business is having the best talent, you can't do like a very specifically narrow focus. So we decided like screw the story. We're going to just raise money from people we already knew and who liked us and thought we were intelligent. And we felt like we had good deal flow and we raised a, a fund that was small enough where if we led deals, great. If we couldn't lead deals, that would be okay too. You know, we think it went really well. Um, it's like, I'm like talking publicly, so I can only say so much, but you know, it, it gained us credibility and we're still in the business. So it went well enough where we're still in the business. Um, and I think that was like a really cool moment for me personally, because it was something I'd always wanted to do. And I felt a little rejected by the venture industry for a long time of being like this credit guy and like the software for equity guy. It's like the first time I finally got to do the thing that like, you know, all these like cool people in the Valley were doing. And then, and then it was weird. Like, I felt like everybody knew something that I didn't, you know, it was like, there was like these hot deals and everyone's doing like SaaS deals at 50 times revenue. I'm like, man, they're so smart. They can figure out why these deals are good, but I just can't figure them out. And it turns out nobody, like they, they all didn't know anything. I couldn't believe it. I was like, Oh, they, 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 you know, the emperor has no clothes. And so that, that's been pretty good. So that was a big inflection point when we realized that nobody really knew anything. And, um, and, and, and then in the hybrid business, you know, that was the first time that we, we could go to RLPs and, and, and very quickly grow a business at scale because we had spent, you know, almost 10 years building trust and relationship with people. And that felt really good. And we thought, gosh, we're in business. Um, so those are some of the inflection points, but there's no like one moment. Every, every year, year feels like the hardest year of your life. And you look back and you're like, oh my God, I can't believe we're here. <laughs> like, this is so much better than we thought it was going to be. Um, I don't know. That's maybe a terrible answer. No, no. It's a great answer. Let's, let's go back to if you were starting over. Like, let's, 2024, you, you, you took a year, uh, six months off, um, and you, you have the expertise that you have now, but it's 24, 24 markets. You have relationships too, but you kind of have to start again. 
how would you think about it? I would have a very hard time thinking that I personally would have edge if I was only exposed to one asset class. Um, it's very hard to out venture venture people. It's very hard to out asset back credit, asset back credit people. So I'd want a strategy where I could see one market and use the insights from that market to invest in another. Maybe that's not the best way to win, but it's the way that I found that works and I'm just rolling with it. I would want to work with the same people. <laughs> you know, it took a really, really long time to, you know, it takes a long time to find the people that you want to work with forever. I honestly, when you asked the question, I was like, God, you mean I have to rehire and find good people over again? So like, I'm going to assume I wouldn't have to refine people. I'd bring all the same people back. Um, and I would probably just like leave all the like, like, you know, I think in the, in the, uh, beginning of the firm, we wanted to make life really simple for the companies we invested in. And so we said, just come to us. And if you need capital, we'll figure out how to get it to you. And then like on the back end, we're like with this machine, you know, like raising SPVs and raising different strategies and doing all these different things and creating complexity on our side so that our companies never felt complexity on their side. I think the main difference is like, we don't have to do that anymore. But I would go slow. God, I feel so confused about the market. Like, do you read the news and feel clarity? Because I don't. Like, nothing makes sense. So I think that my answer would be, I just go slow. I mean, we're going slow right now. Because we don't think the, good, the world's too good and, or too bad. We just have no freaking clue. You know, like the hybrid thing, we always tell people, it's like, it's great because it's like short duration. So you get the money back in time for when the world becomes more obvious. We try not to pick valuation, so we get our returns through structure as opposed to picking price. Um, you know, and we give up a little bit of upside for that. We try to invest in companies that are already profitable, so you don't have to rely on the capital markets to raise their next round. So basically, it's like the I don't know strategy. <laughs> um, and it's good. It, it works. It actually turns out like when you don't know, you can still invest. But yeah, I'd go slow. I mean, um, I don't know. I think anybody who... I think most people who go on podcasts are like big promoters. Um, and I'm like, kind of like sick of it. Um, and so I don't know, I'm going to, whatever the anti-promoter answer is, I'd go really slow. Chop wood, carry water. Um, that, no, I appreciate the answer because I'm effectively living that question now, right? After eight years at, at Village, I, I'm starting over. Uh, and so I have, you mentioned great track record, you know, people want to back you. Come work out of our office. You know, we'll look at stuff. We, we see like all these crazy deals. We have like a bunch of people that we're, we're a little nerdy. So you might hate that, but we're, you know, we're, we're, we're fun. You know, we work our butts off. We're whatever hour you come into the office, there'll be somebody there because we work like a hundred hours a day. So yeah, just come hang out with us. I, I'd love to. This is a recruiting meeting, not a podcast. Yes, exactly. I mean, I, I'm really reflecting and I'm reflecting here in public with, with my audience on how exactly I want to play venture. Because if I would have just stayed, I would just continue doing what I was doing. But now I'm really reflecting first principles, like what makes sense in 2024. I, I have two of those three things you mentioned. I have a great track record. I have people who want to anchor or back me, but I don't yet have internal conviction on the story of how to play venture. I, I've been obsessed the last decade of sort of the YC approach to venture, which is you go early, you go at meaningful scale, and you build a value prop um, with things like product hunter on deck that help with customers and talent that gets you, you know, into the best deals and sometimes even special economics. And today it just seems much more crowded. YC itself has moved up, up market. It seems like some of that alpha in early stage is, um, 
is, is, is harder. Um, and so it's not obvious to me what kind of firm I should build. And so what I'm first focused on doing is, is kind of building these assets that like product hunt and on deck solve for distribution. You mentioned megaphone, solve for talent. Uh, I'm very interested in, in expert marketplaces. You know, th- if, if you own Tegas, for example, is the, is the way to monetize selling to VC firms. If you get special insights on trends, companies, people, products, or should you trade on that information or should you do both? You should definitely, you should definitely trade on that information. You should not sell proprietary information that gives you edge. That's, that's the easiest answer. <laughs> so. How would you think about it if, if you were me, given your knowledge of my skill sets, uh, interest, given, you know, what I just said about the things I'm going to be working on for, for a bit? Like, you know, I've never thought about doing other asset classes. Um, you know, what, what advice might, might you, might you have to me? Um, I actually have been talking to a lot of my friends in venture because I feel like everyone's like rethinking venture. And I actually think that they shouldn't at all. I think they should go back to where we were in 2014. So, um, I'm stealing comments from Jesse, uh, who I already alluded to, but I think he, he frames it so perfectly. Um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. So he, you know, he'll take credit for the good parts and not for the bad parts of what I'm about to say. Um, like venture one seed investing 1.0 was like a bunch of people who were kind of random and like they didn't all work at VC funds before they did it. They were just like tech founders or like former finance people or like whatever. And they invested in seed companies and like, Nobody really thought they were good or bad necessarily. Like, and, and by the way, and they all just took a unique point of view. And some of those seed funds were really bad and they failed and they died. Some of them were really good and they became like super dis- disciplined and, but oversubscribed and nobody can get into them anymore. Or they turned in like multi-stage, like smart beta funds. And then like somehow what happened was everybody, like all these LPs wanted to stop taking career risk. And so they like would go to these like, former people at like these like multi-stage smart beta funds and be like, oh, you should take like the multi-stage smart beta approach to seed investing. And like the multi-stage smart beta approach was like a lot of market maps. Oh my God, VCs love market maps. So you build a market map and you're like, oh, this is like an interesting space. And I'm going to like find the company in the space that I like the most because like the founder's good and like there's a feature set in the space that's good or whatever. And I'm going to like try to like use my brand to like win one of the rounds in the company that I like, or if not that company, like one of the other three companies I think has a pretty good shot. And then like, they like left those smart beta multi-stage funds and started seed funds. And like, it doesn't work in seed. Like you only get one shot. You don't have a big brand. And so the, the way they, they try to compete is they still built market maps and they still try to like find the winning company or one of the three winning companies at a chance or whatever. And then they paid like a hundred times revenue for it. And like, and they were like, oh man, venture's broken. No, venture's not broken at all. It's just everyone fucked it up. You know, I would go back to normal venture. That's what I would do if you were, if I were you. You like, you have really good deal flow. You have a unique point of view. You've seen so many companies get built. You're probably better at it than you've ever been in your life. You're entering the age where you're like peak career, especially for venture, because it's kind of a young person's game. And just like invest on a unique point of view. And then as soon as you invest, convince everybody why it's a good idea. And then that's your business model. Like, so do what venture was supposed to do in the first place. Don't rethink it. Actually, like unthink it, like unscrew it up. <laughs> back to back to basics. Um, you know, and gearing towards closing here, it, it's one thing I just want to say about you, is, which is really fascinating. Is you know, I, I feel like I know a lot about the sort of the vent, the players in venture. Like I can name a lot of firms and their strategies the way that like a big basketball fan can name like the best high school players or something. You know, like people really follow this. It's like the best video game. Yeah, it's, it's like the best video game ever. 
but I don't know anything about baseball, uh, for example. Whereas I feel like you know basketball, baseball, football, like you know all sports. Like when you talk about, you know, credit and insurance and other asset classes that other venture capitalists know nothing about. You know, they they don't even know the firms that you that you mentioned earlier as uh, that that are the top of the game. How do you do that? And and for people listening in who say, hey, I kind of want to diversify my knowledge base a little bit, not just you know study all all about venture, but also about other asset classes. What advice do you like? Where's a where's a high leverage way to learn how to do that? Took ten years, you know. So like, but talking to people, yeah. Um, First off you do a thing and then you try to find something like tangential to it. And, and there's like things that I don't know anything about. Like I, if you asked me about like which long short equity funds, you know, hedge funds are good. I, I, I really couldn't tell you what makes it great. I, I'd like listen to an analyst, talk about a stock and like try to figure out if I think they sounded smart or not. That'd be like my best idea of how to like underwrite a long short equity fund. So no, I, I know about a handful of asset classes and I try to go up and down the capital structure of companies. But I mean, it's uh, looking at a lot of deals you know, I guess, I guess I'll answer it differently. I'll say when, when we're trying to do a new space that we haven't done before and the way we learn about it is we try to make this sure the space is like one step away from where we currently are. So we're not going from like over here to over here. And, um, and then we try to like look at 50 of them because it takes 50 B's to recognize an A. You know, usually when we look at a company, it's the same as looking at a space. When we look at a company, we ask ourselves three things. Like what are the things that we need to believe for this company to work? Are we qualified to figure out those things? And would it be worth our time? And sometimes when we think it's not worth our time, but then we see like 14 pitches in the same ecosystem or space or asset class, we're like, shoot, maybe we should go learn about that asset class or ecosystem or space. So then we spend a lot of time. We try to get a lot of pitches. And then we try to co-invest with somebody who's been in the space for a while. Um, and then we learn from that deal and we size it appropriately. And you know, we're not doing it because we think we're like just learning. We think we're going to make money on it. You know, we've already seen a bunch of things. We think that we're now at least kind of experts in it. And we do it over and over and over and over again um, until finally we feel confident to lead deals in that space. And then we end up knowing the space really well. You know, insurance is a great example. Like I think insurance is interesting because everybody in private credit has to think insurance is interesting. You know, we had a great financial crisis. Banks had flighty liabilities, which SVB just found out. So, you know, after the crisis, a lot of private credit investors ended up raising like shadow bank funds, like just regular LP funds. Some had a really good idea that they should buy insurance companies instead or reinsurance businesses instead. You know, the, the nice thing about insurance companies is the same as depositors. You know, they're regulated liabilities that are cheaper than what LPs demand, but they're better because in life insurance and retirement annuities, um, you know, you know when you owe the money back, whereas bank deposit banks don't know when their depositors are going to pull money. It's okay, better place to hold, you know, alternatives. Um, and like all these, you know, private credit funds basically started doing their deals using insurance money instead of LP capital. Okay. So fine. So like I'm in private credit, a lot of people in private credit know a lot about insurance. I should try to learn a lot about insurance. So I used to call like all these private equity funds that bought insurance companies and made a lot of friends with people who work at insurance companies and talked to people like Drew who runs an insure tech venture fund, um, Drew Aldrich, you probably know. And then, and then I got to the point where I realized like, I know more about insurance than the average VC, but not enough not a lot compared to the person who's buying insurance companies. And, you know, at one point we thought, gosh, should we buy an insurance company to go along with our private credit business? And that would have been bad because that would have been the dumb money in the room. And so then we thought, well, maybe we should co-invest with somebody who could buy an insurance company. And we would even like give, put up most of the money and then like pay them economics, or, like an origination fee or something if, if they wanted to make sure they had skin in the game. But we couldn't find somebody who was willing to do it. 
you know, I just actually had lunch earlier today with somebody who's like the deputy CI of an insurance company. Um, and so then we came to the conclusion that like it wasn't right for us, but we learned a lot along the way. And one day we'll have the opportunity to hire somebody who's bought a bunch of insurance companies before. And, you know, the trade is kind of mature. It's not like it's a new idea anymore. So, you know, if it's a, it's a new idea, it's easier to be an expert than when it's an old idea. When it's an old idea, people really are experts. So this is an old idea. We need to find someone who's done it a million times. And so I probably know enough to hire somebody who would be good at it, but probably not enough to do it myself. So that's like a way that we're exploring that space. You know, the, the new version of that is the RIA space. So everybody, everybody did the insurance trade already. And then they're like, well, where else can we find money? And somebody was like, well, did you know, like wealth at, well, you know, independent RIAs don't have that many alts in them anymore because a lot of their clients are accredited but not qualified purchasers. And, you know, QP investors are usually the only people who can invest in funds now. And everyone's like, oh, great. We'll go start interval funds and all these other products that you can sell alts into RIAs with. So now we're spending a lot of time in the RIA world. I don't know. And then, you know, we work like 100 hours a day. Like, we don't have any hobbies. This is all we do. You know, we're just like finance nerds. <laughs> what, what I love about your story is it's not just, hey, here are the you read venture deals for every space. It's no, you got to get your hands dirty and like look at deals, look at deals with the smartest people, earn your way to have the right to co-invest with them, to learn from them and um, and just keep keep like getting in the weeds. I'll tell you this. It's not a market map. <laughs> exactly. Um by the time it's a market map, it's, it's too late, um, perhaps. Um, Ali, uh, this has been an incredible conversation. Uh, we're overdue for me uh, coming to visit you in New York. I'll, I'll make that happen. Uh, thanks so much for, for coming and sharing your wisdom with us. Eric, thank you. Uh, I will talk to you soon. Awesome. And I'm going to convince you to have a podcast at someday. That it's, going to, it's going to happen. I'm too grumpy, man. You know, I'm just like, I have no good opinions. I'm too grumpy. Well, if you if you listen to this and you thought Ali was, uh, you know, you want to hear more from him, uh, DM him or uh, DM me, and I'll I'll send it to him because uh, uh, you, you have something wrong with you. <laughs> you should go read a book or something. <laughs> yes. All right, I'll see you guys. Thank you. Turpentine VC is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Moment of Zen and Econ 102. If you liked the episode, please leave a review in the Apple Store or rate us on Spotify. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.